Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And we are here to talk about game design again. And this month, we are continuing to talk about dominant strategies and how to encourage players away from them. This month, we're looking at encouraging players to take risks away from the safe and sorted tactic. So a lot of games, players tend to play very conservatively, and they're playing in order to not lose, as opposed to perhaps in order to win. And that's not inherently a bad thing, but sometimes the more engaging way to play a game can be to take those risks. And so we're going to look at games that encourage that. A dominant strategy isn't just a strategy that's effective. A dominant strategy is a strategy that's safe. And when a game is just completely safe and your dominant strategy just works, then there's not much at stake. And often dominant strategies aren't the best strategies in terms of like efficiency. They're just like, the path of least resistance. And so by engaging in the more risky behaviors, you tend to up-level interestingness as an example of a bad dominant strategy that is risk-averse would be standing in a corner and just shooting arrows until half an hour later and the monster is dead. So that's our basic intro to what this is. Let's talk about our first game to get more concrete about it. Bloodborne is a 2015 action RPG from From Software that continues the legacy of being incredibly difficult, or being perceived at least as difficult, expanding the Souls series to two separate words, Soulsborne. So there's a lot going on in Bloodborne, but a lot of it's kind of in reaction to the previous games, Dark Souls 1 and 2 which many players would navigate primarily using a shield. It's kind of a joke that you'd always have your shield up before going in anywhere that you don't already know to defend yourself from things you haven't seen. And there's nothing wrong with this technique. And Dark Souls and Demon Souls are very enjoyable played like that. There's a little tension that comes from like wandering into spaces. But the developers never really felt right and have talked about in a few interviews that that's not how they envisage these games being played. And so in Bloodborne, not only do you not have a shield to defend with, for the most part, there is an item in the game that is a shield that is laughably bad. It's very explicit in the game that you are not supposed to use it, but you could. So one of the main ways that the game manages this, because without a shield, you're going to take more damage. So after being hit by an enemy, a small portion of your life remains not drained, I guess is the right term. Uh... So your life bar is mostly red, and it becomes a gray color as opposed to just emptying out completely. And this gray life can be regained if you manage to hit an enemy before it drains out completely. So after a moment, the gray life itself starts to deplete. If you hit an enemy before then, it turns back into red life, proportional to the amount of damage that you were able to deal. And it's really engaging as a simple mechanic because it manages to get you going right back in after a bad thing happens, as opposed to perhaps the sensible thing of, Something bad happened, I'm going to go back, recollect myself, and go on with a plan. That's very wasteful in Bloodborne. It's oftentimes, I, I mean, I have to say this, despite the fact that like this design thing is obviously here for you to be aggressive, because that's what it wants you to do. It wants you to, oh, I took a hit. Okay, okay, I need to regain that life. If you're fighting against an enemy that you've never fought before, you're probably better off backing away, taking the hit in the life, and like looking for an, an opening. It traps you, like, as... As a lot of quote-unquote Soulsborne design does, it traps you into thinking that you can 
like regain this lost ground and in doing so put yourself in a vulnerable position to lose all of your life as opposed to just something yeah so it's an interesting balance like it's trying to make you take more risks and in doing so it kind of amps up the perceived difficulty at the same time one of the key components of this is the fact that getting hit staggers you when you're staggered you lose reaction time because your character can't respond immediately and in that time whoever hit you has time to recover themselves from the big hit they did so you actually have less time to react after you've gotten hit so being able to find the, the position to be able to use this mechanic to your to the fullest does take a fair bit of knowledge of the enemies what kind of attacks they do what kind of telegraphs they have what to look out for as well and there's some interesting dynamics in how enemy formations play out here because even very early on you might get hit by a large attack but if you have a wider um affecting weapon like one of the first weapons you get, the threaded cane, or one of the first optional weapons, the cane, you can switch to like a wider ranged mode and hit more enemies at once, which means you can recover more life potentially at once. But it's also slower. And I assume this expands out to other weapons too, even. Yep. So most, if not all, the weapons in Bloodborne are called trick weapons. And there is uh, a way for you to activate a second mode in them. Oftentimes, this means that the weapons become slower deal more damage, and hit a wider area. It's not a hard and fast rule, but that's often what happens. And yeah, like with the Theric Cane, if you're able to hit multiple enemies, because it's just proportional to the damage you dealt, not to the damage you deal to the thing that hit you. You just gain life back. Yeah, I think that's a really cool like little nuance that it's just anything, even though like thematically that's a little strange, it works out. Like I don't think most players would be like, oh, the theming on this is slightly strange. Thematically, you are... Um, taking the blood from anything that you hit oh okay okay i thought i viewed it more as like a revengey thing but no. i guess that does make sense with just like any yeah, blood yeah yeah so the the opening sequence in the game shows your character undergoing blood ministration which is the thing to turn them into a hunter and from there you have a very special relationship with blood you know to the point where you consume blood vials to heal so it's not necessarily the blood of a specific target but any blood is able to restore your vitality is the idea thinking of blood actually that was one thing that i was surprised how much i enjoyed tinkering with in my short time with this which was blood bullets so blood bullets allow you to use life to make some bullets basically that life goes down as gray life still which means that you can do something very foolish like see a group of enemies make some blood bullets, then run for into them with a wide area of attack and gain back like a bunch of the resource you spent. Yep, that's right. Which then later you can use those bullets to more thoughtfully provoke fights and things. Correct. Or even invoke parries. So because Bloodborne doesn't rely on shields, you stagger certain opponents by shooting them at the right time in a vulnerable spot of animation. So it just like ties in really nicely, which... I'd heard a lot about the um, regaining life system in Bloodborne, but I'd never really heard people talk about the blood bullet system and how it interacted with that. So I was really surprised to see just how neat that was. There's a, yeah, neat is the word I would absolutely use here. There's a lot of neat mathematics that come into play in terms of the design as well. I struggled to be able to ever regain the amount of life I lost off of a um, blood bullet charge with hitting only one enemy. You have a better chance if you manage to find a group of enemies that are relatively easy and vulnerable that you could strike across to regain all of it. But if you don't, if you're only farming blood bullets off of one enemy, chances are you'll never regain all of the life that you lose to those bullets. Yeah, that was about my experience too. It was always like, see a group, ah, I can like get most of my blood bullets for almost free if not entirely it's one of those moments in a good game where like you feel like you've cheated the system when you work out how this is going but when you see the math in action 
it's obviously super well accounted for. Yeah, yeah. like this is not coincidental. Yeah, yeah, th- th- this is all like planned out. Like, oh, the average amount of time for all of our heavy attacks that deal X amount of damage will probably take about this. So this is when you start losing the gray life that you've built up. Like, it, it, I'm sure there's a design document with a table somewhere that just makes it all work out very smart. Most of the time in Bloodborne, your firearms are secondary weapons. However, there are ways to build it along with very powerful secondary weapons or bullet-using weapons to become powerful. Uh, This is called a blood tinge build, which is effectively dexterity in other kind of RPGs. And this leads to an interesting thing, because you can only ever hold a maximum of 20 silver bullets, so these blood bullets. Uh, If you just pick them up off the ground, they're called silver bullets. You can only hold a maximum of 20 of these at a time. If you set up beforehand with the blood bullets, you can go up to a stock of 25 before going into a big encounter. And if it's in a boss fight, nothing's gonna drop silver bullets for you. So if you are in a blood tinge build which is a more advanced build like you're not advised to do this if this is your first playthrough of the game but it is totally viable if you know what you're doing you will have to rely on some point on blood bullets you will have to choose to in order to be effective in a boss fight take damage to your health and then use your firearms slash ranged weapon to be able to finish a boss off this means that you get closer to death because you're taking actual damage to get this done it means that your blood vials that you go in with which is just a way to you know heal also become ammo in a weird way because you can just you don't have to go in and take your gray life back by hitting something you can blood bullet into blood vial immediately and undo the damage but that means that you spend time with the animations and all that stuff so it's super super interesting that one of the ways to Play the game requires you to play risky by potentially going down on health to be able to get ammo to be able to play at a safe range. So, you know, safety is never guaranteed in Bloodborne. That's it's really cool with the system. And it's really like a core aesthetic of from software as a whole, as a company, that you're never really safe. There's always the risk that something could go wrong. And Bloodborne, like, continues on that legacy really nicely. And so, Bloodborne's key idea is like dealing with issues after they've happened, being risky after the bad thing has happened. Our next game is looking at getting as close to the edge of the bad thing happening and preventing it. Bayonetta. A 2009 Platinum Games developed stylish action game that cemented Platinum as the go-to developer for action games, featuring the titular Bayonetta character. She's a very witchy witch, and her core mechanic in the games is that if she dodges very close to taking the hit, that you will get witch time. Witch time slows down a lot of the environment, the enemies, allows you to deal more damage, do more elaborate combos, and generally make the world like cool and purple. (laughs) In a lot of action games like this, you have this weird disconnect where, oh, I dodged that, yeah, sure, I didn't take damage, but the move went right through me. Like, the hitbox of the enemy just goes right through your character. And instead of, like, trying to hide that, Bayonetta leans into that. That's exactly what you want to happen in order to activate Witch Time. And you get an ability at a certain point where if you actually do it at the exact time you get hit, you take some of the damage and you literally turn into bats for a moment, which is a cool way to signify, like, you didn't do it quite right, but you still did it. And you're going to get an aesthetic reward for it. So yeah, in most action games, you tend to try and be dodging things early because that means both that you'll be in a spot out of the recovery animation more quickly, which means you can continue your assault more efficiently. And 
it's the best way of ensuring that you don't actually get hit. If you were never there, you're not going to get hit by it. Bayonetta encourages you to be at the point of impact the moment you get hurt, the moment you would get hurt, and then continue on your damage. And it's often in which time when you can do the most damage. Which time slowing down as well is a very, very neat solution to... I'm not sure if I'd describe it as a problem, but... It's, it's It plays into this very neatly. If you dodge early, you're rewarded by the fact that you have enough space and room to be able to set up whatever you want to do in theory, right? Because the, there, there's that much more recovery that the enemy has. But if you're if the developer is trying to encourage you to dodge close to the strike, that means that part of the recovery will be taken up by you recovering from the dodge. So this kind of compromise of just saying, hey, we'll just slow time down. Make you move at normal time and like extend the amount of duration thematically that the enemy is recovering means that yeah, you're encouraging this really close, uh, up close and personal playstyle. And one of the interesting ways that they tie it into both high and low level play is that at high level play, the combos you can do in which time are very different. Like the slow, slowing time changes gravity, changes how you can follow up to different things. At lower level play, players rely a lot on the combo enders called Wicked Weaves, which if you've seen the game at all, it's usually where a large foot or fist comes out of a p- demonic portal of some kind and does a massive punch or kick. Pretty simple stuff, aesthetically, but players rely on that, and they take a while, they're slow, they take build-up. So for a new player, they will use which time to land a lot of these efficiently. An experienced player will use it to really manipulate the physics and the weird mechanics of which time in order to do a very elaborate combo. So it's a nice mechanic in that it helps both levels of player, but Ultimately, it does sort of reduce Bayonetta a little bit down to being about dodging. And that's kind of a critique of the game compared to, say, its equivalent Devil May Cry, which is more about doing the attacks. Bayonetta is much more about, like, doing the dodge and then following up with stuff. Would you say that's a fair critique, actually? You're more in the Devil May Cry side of this yeah, equation. I think that's that would only be a kind of serious critique if you wound up having to be very reactive or if you had to wait a long time. So another kind of example for a game where you have to wait for something to happen is certain enemies in the Legend of Zelda series, where they're not vulnerable until they attack and then you can counterattack them. The nice thing about Bayonetta is that a lot of the enemies are reasonably aggressive. So although you are waiting for dodges to happen, you can kind of do it by keeping an eye out for the for the enemies around you. So you can still focus on one enemy and keep an eye out for a dodge to come from your left or your right and then dodge when that happens, and then reap the rewards of each time. Whereas in Devil May Cry, what you need to do is just manage all of those enemies at once. So that's true for general encounters in Bayonetta, but when it comes to boss fights, there are a number of them that are like just hard. If you don't have Witch Time activated, you cannot do the damage. Yeah, that's the unfortunate side effect of it. Obviously, you want to lean into your super unique mechanic, and Witch Time is that, so you have bosses that take advantage of that. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question and conundrum that makes the game a lot more reactive at least in those sequences rather than like actively setting something up uh at least for a novice level because you know at the level where someone's speedrunning they know how to start to manipulate the ai to try to get certain attacks that are easier to react to and stuff that so yeah bayonet is a bit more reactive than devil may cry uh, especially in those sequences but i don't think to the level that it's like incomparably different already one of the very like little things that i like about how they use this mechanic is that you know a lot of players will still tend towards not using it until they realize how good it is because they don't want to take the risk. It's too much effort to time it. There are a bunch of moments in Bayonetta where you have to solve terrible navigation puzzles, which is not how you'd expect me to be leading into something that's good about the game. But 
There are lots of moments when you have to basically summon a lightning bolt to attack you, to which you must dodge. And by doing that dodge, you can progress to the next area. Like, you might use this to walk across water or something. And it's a really cool little mechanic because even though ultimately all the things it makes you do are not that interesting, it really pushes you, like, you have to interact with Witch Time. You have to see what it's doing. And then eventually, ideally, you will start using it in combat if you hadn't already been doing it. And even as, like, Platinum is really interesting in that they are very good at making their games very accessible to very low-level players. And just, like, the sheer randomness of sometimes getting Witch Time, based on the chaos of the game, is just really satisfying. Yeah, it's a bit Skinner boxy in that kind of thing, where you just dodge and then, oh, there happened to be an enemy there who was attacking. Cool, I get a bit of Witch Time. Yeah, and it feels good, and that helps encourage you, like, oh, what if I try for it? And this is where the design really has to step up to the challenge, because if you're going for something like this, you need to have very good telegraphs. If you're going to make reactive gameplay, it needs to, number one, be fun to react to. Because if you have to wait 10 minutes for something to happen, that's not fun. And then the next thing is that it has to be reactive. Like your, your enemies, your environment has to telegraph that this is the point where you dodge. Like very clearly, this is what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's very true. And it is a critique of the game, actually, that the camera angles and the amount that's zoomed out can make a lot of regular enemies kind of hard to fight, whereas the big impressive things that are supposed to be scary end up being some of the easier things to fight. So Banner doesn't quite nail that as much as it probably should do given how core it is. It overall is nailing it very well. Like, I'm not saying that it's doing it badly, but it is not achieving it in the way that some people might expect it to. There, There's room for improvement even in a good concept like Bayonetta. And a generally well-executed concept like Bayonetta. Yeah, right. it's a it's so close to getting it really right, and the sequel does tend to tighten that up a lot, but it has other issues, but a lot of what we said here would apply there too. Anyway, I think that's all we've got to say about Bayonetta for now. So moving on to our next title, which encourages you to push yourself past what you might think is a reasonable limit. Next up is Final Fantasy XIII, a 2010 Square Enix-developed JRPG featuring an almost contradictory, simultaneous, hands-off, and intense battle system. So, we've talked about XIII before in the Combos episode, and that was kind of the inspiration to this particular episode, where the combat system is in real time and it has fairly fast actions going on that are mostly handled by AI, with the player being able to change the AI setup, effectively, of the characters. The enemies have a stagger bar, which is a bar that fills up when they take damage or status effects. When it reaches a certain point, there's a huge multiplier on how much damage enemies take, that enemy takes, for a short amount of time. This system, in its basic essence, is trying to get you to push a little bit harder to deal that damage, hit that meter, rather than just sitting back and doing the standard JRPG fight, fight, heal, or sometimes fight, heal, heal. 13 really exists as a response to like a lot of the past Final Fantasies, which let you do a lot of like small individual choices that ultimately end up being the same patterns of fight, fight, heal. And in 13, you can do that basic pattern, but by doing so, it will make battles take 
an exponentially larger amount of time. When you really push your luck in 13 and try and go a little bit further than in other games you should push your life, you will be rewarded by a battle that might have taken three minutes ending in one minute. It's a huge difference. And it really encourages you to just go that extra little mile. It, it, and it's not fun playing the three minutes out. It's really dull. There is like nothing fancy happening on screen. The effects are very minimal and like everything's slow. And while you can play the game manually by controlling your lead character, the game isn't really built around that. 13 runs into some issues in that it's extremely well balanced and managed in the sense that you have pretty low level caps per an area and mostly every boss you fight expands how far you can level up, which means in essence the developers have a very good idea what your power level is for most of the game. The issue here is that they can the difficulty is like very tight. If you don't quite push your luck enough, that can result in battles taking forever. If you push your luck a little too much beyond that fine margin of risk, you'll die very quickly. Life is quick to regain and to be lost in 13. And it's a very like difficult tightrope that it is walking. It doesn't always succeed with, but in general, this battle system is really heavily praised for how intense it is, and that risk encouragement lends at that. And some people don't like 13's battle system, tend to be those that didn't engage as thoroughly with the stagger system, is my impression, and did a lot more of leaning on the dominant strategy. There's a lot of preconceptions to fight through when a game is the 13th in a series, and it, it really didn't help that you know, there's a lot of stigma to the game already. However, the stagger system is like very interesting and very unique. Yeah, 13 does a lot of things wrong to help you lead up into it. It features a long hour or so of fairly minimal gameplay where most of the systems that make the battle system interesting are not in place. There's a lot of things going on in 13 that means that it needs a slightly slower build-up, but it goes a little bit too far. But the point of this is more that, yeah, it's very focused on giving you this tightly balanced combat that encourages you to not just stand back, not just sit back, but to go deep and go quick. Otherwise, you miss out on huge, huge boons that you cannot really live without. How often did you push too far and just fail to fill the bar the last bit? Uh, fairly often. I, oh, fairly often. Enough times. Yeah. And there are enough times when I did hit the bar and then also immediately crumbled from something else killing me. Just because one enemy staggered doesn't mean everything in the fight is not a threat anymore. That's right. And it creates a different dominant strategy, which is kind of interesting in itself, which is often you hit the stagger and immediately you go to, say, one attacker and two healers or one attacker, one attacker, one like average sort of character and one healing dedicated catch up before you go full out on being hyper aggressive yeah, yeah, yeah. now that you've broken the enemy. Because you have a very clear milestone a very clear finish line i hit this and then i i have to burst out in damage so i have to be in a position where i can ignore my health and defense for a small amount of time because otherwise the stagger is just not worth it like it's not worth it to put an enemy in the stagger and then be forced onto the back foot because of the other enemies and have everyone heal you're wasting the stagger exactly and there are points in some council like you do feel like oh, i got them staggered but i can't afford to take make the most of it it does give 13's battles a very distinct rhythm that like you push hard you get that stagger then you have to pull back just a little bit to get yourself caught up with your life and things and then you go in for a deep final push to get the most out of that stagger before it goes away a lot of setup like normally setup is associated with more turn-based kind of activities but there's a lot of setup in an active sense in a real-time sense hmm 
the paradigm shift system where you are changing what your character's roles are, you can be changing that as often as um, once every like five or 10 seconds, which is what lends simultaneously intense and hands-off battle system. But yeah, I think there's not much more to really say about this that we haven't already said in the combos episode. So yeah, in, in summary, it's just the thing that makes you want to push past the basic paradigm of fight, fight, heal, and encourages you to play actively, setting up for big payoffs. Which coincidentally is also a big part of the next game, having a lot of setup to do, and having like kind of work your way around, uh, you know, a relatively broad battle. So Battle Moon Wars is an episodic doujin game series developed by uh, a group called Work, uh, W-E-R-K, that ran from 2005 to 2009. It features characters from various type moon games in a Super Robot Wars-like uh, tactical RPG game. A Super Robot Wars is a series of mecha strategy RPGs that features characters from many series like Gundam and Evangelion and even Voltron in some of the games. That is long running and a great fan service feature, which is why it's a similar style of game to that. Uh, and it's also worth noting that initially in planning, this game was supposed to be XCOM 2. From what we understood of XCOM 2, it had a pretty hard time limit on some of its missions, if not all of its missions, that forced you to be aggressive, that, that forced you to push your team and take you know a bit of a risky stance and set up in order to push yourself through a mission under the time limit. And Battle Moon Wars has a similar kind of thing that we'll get to. But yeah, it's just worth noting here that XCOM 2 was definitely on our list. It was something to be considered, but we just didn't end up having enough time slash focus slash attention to give to... XCOM 2 is a relatively long game. Like It's a long game. We need to have a lot of experience with these mission systems. It's a very different kind of game to what either of us usually play, I feel. Yeah. As well, so there's less like genre knowledge we can transfer or developer knowledge we can transfer. But it is definitely like what this spot is about, a limited time to do a tactical mission to encourage you to make some maybe less common plays than you would usually. And that tied to the original XCOM, people would play very slowly and methodically to get through the level carefully because it was very punishing. And XCOM 2, much like Bloodborne, wanted to stop players using, metaphorically, the shield from Dark Souls. I just go in there and do some stuff. And players didn't like that, which was sort of the main point we were going to lead into based on our limited understanding, at least. It's a bit punishing because in XCOM, you can lose squad members permanently. And that's not good. But this is not that. This is much lighter in how it manages its attempt to make you make risk, take risks. And it's pretty interesting because it's the Super Robot Wars style game. So Super Robot Wars style strategy RPGs are a little bit like Fire Emblem and Advance Wars, which is whenever you get attacked, you have some response. In these sorts of games, you'd be a- you're able to choose whether you defend, dodge, or counterattack. If you're in range. If you're within range to be able to counter, that is. Yeah. That's a good point. So you can choose how you do it, unlike in Fire Emblem where you always attack, and maybe you don't want to do that. In here, you can choose whether you defend, which minimizes damage significantly, evade, which um, doubles the evasion rate, I believe. Yeah, or halves the enemy's hit rate. Halves the enemy's hit rate. That is a better way to put it. (laughs) And 
counterattack where you don't get any of those other two bonuses but you do get to deal damage back equivalent to your own regular attack it's not a diminished counter yeah that's right and the system battle masteries are specific bonus goals to strive for that if you accomplish them you get extra resources to upgrade your characters between missions correct so in every level you have a win condition a lose condition and these are as simple as kill every enemy on screen all of your units die and the battle mastery is a third kind of condition slash clause and these have a small amount of variety but most of them tend to boil down to complete the mission in x number of turns the number of turns increases depending on the complexity of the mission and i discovered in my first playthrough of this oh so slight disclaimer i've played through this game multiple times which is one of the reasons we came to this because there is at least a long history of experience in this game for one of us and you played this before but had like when you revisited it was your first like real yeah this is my first time that i like actually play beyond mission because there are a few like very minor ux things that do not gel with me despite it being a very lovely game so for a new player just completing the thought i had before oftentimes when you come up against these battle masteries that require you to finish in x number of turns if you achieve them at all you achieve them almost uh on the last possible move that you can make i have achieved battle masteries on the last possible counterattack that would allow me to achieve it before uh, in my first few playthroughs. So they can be pretty close, but if you know what you're doing, you can, uh, like in my current replaythrough, I can achieve most of the battle masteries about two turns earlier, if you know what you're doing. And I think the fact that they're kind of precise for newer players is really good because it encourages them to use the more risky options. So I mentioned that you've got three options when you're attacked. Which one do you do? Do it because damage is pretty high in this game. So taking lots of damage is not what you really want to be doing if you are playing without this restriction, which would lead to you basically always picking evade or defend depending on what your character is good at. It's just safer. Yeah. Your characters tend to have a slight amount more health than the enemies, up to double the amount of health of the weaker ones. But that's not much in the long run depending on how many enemies are active around you you can get attacked up to like four to eight times in a really bad scenario and unless you've built your character to be like a crazy tough tank that is dangerous like you could easily lose that character and that's bad but if you just simply defend or evade them all you will not reach these targets and so players will very quickly realize i have to do the counterattack option and i because i can't do it every time I have to really know when I'm going to do it. I think that is a really masterful balance. I think that's what makes this game an interesting choice. And that these battle masteries are kind of just small little bonuses. Yeah. Bloodborne, Bayonetta, and 13 are all very, very explicitly built around their risk-encouraging mechanics. Battle Moon Wars, it was probably built... Like, these maps were just certainly planned with these things around them, I imagine. But it was not a core mechanic. It doesn't feel like it, at least. I'm sure that... As the developers were making it, they were planning, yeah, it will take about this number of turns to get through this map. And then the battle masteries would have been tweaked based around that. So yeah, in the situation where you're choosing to, yes, I want to counterattack this specific one, but dodge or evade all the others. That's a super interesting situation to be in. And that choice is always good in Super Robot Wars and all these games like that. But here with that limit, just like makes it a little bit of a sweeter choice. And sometimes it's not very inventive unfortunately just forcing a turn limit on the player and it's unfortunate because the numbers in the early game are tight enough that 
if you miss a battle mastery too early on a fresh run, you may find yourself in a situation where you're struggling to get later battle masteries. Because the rewards you get are like, they're not huge, but they're just enough, right? Yeah. yeah. Like it's one upgrade or something you were saying. Yeah, depending though. on the the state of the numbers that you're in, you might find yourself short of just one damage upgrade, for example. And just one damage upgrade might turn an enemy dying from three hits to four hits, which may extend the battle by one turn. And if the turns are so tight, that might end up costing you that battle mastery. So there is a risk of cascading effects if you just play the game and accept that you didn't get the battle mastery on your first try. I am one of those like load save loaders, so I always got all of my battle masteries, but I noticed that these numbers were tight enough that there were situations where if I didn't have enough uh, out-of-battle resource to upgrade my characters, I wouldn't have gotten it. There is an interesting counterbalance to this, which is grinding is sort of possible in this. In the, of, yeah. In the when you lose a match, you can opt to retry it. And when you retry it, as opposed to quitting and reloading, you get to keep all the experience that you've gained through the match. So you can keep doing this to slowly level up. And this is so that the game never throws you a situation that you just can't eventually brute force your way through, I imagine. But the moment you click retry, you can never get that battle mastery. Yep. Like, you've already taken four turns. Now you are denied it. Correct. I don't know how this interacts with, like, the ones that are very specific that are not just turn related, but I assume that retrying just denies you a battle mastery full stop. Yeah, I I don't recall ever being in that situation for a non-turn limit battle mastery, so I, I don't remember off the top of my head how that interacts. But yeah, it, it becomes a lot weirder and trickier in that situation. And it's not even... It's not a viable grind mechanic in a lot of cases, because some levels lose condition is just if you lose a specific character, you game over. Uh, as in, like, there are just key NP, uh, playable characters that you can't lose. But sometimes it's literally every ally defeated. And that's actually not easy to have happen in some stages. So it, it, it ends up taking a long time, even if it's possible. That is a good point that I hadn't considered, actually. In the situation where, you know, like, four names and none of them can die, pick the weakest one, send them out. It's potential that you have potential to grind there. But when it's a case of, yeah, you have to kill everyone, that's a lot harder. Uh, but another side of grinding is you can use a, li a limited resource to double the amount of battle points you gain on a kill. You are also encouraged to set up. Set up kills to be able to put the buff on a, a character that's dealing the final blow so that you gain all of the um, battle points, the resources to upgrade your characters later on. This is will, right? The resource you're spending? No, this is SP. Oh, SP. Oh, so it's not um the way like you can buff your characters and things, right? Like this resource, what does it compete with? Uh, other buffs like guaranteed hits or healing or curing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was just calling will the wrong thing then. Yes. That resource and how you use it is really important because so I was playing as the the girl. Yeah. Um she has a name. Haru Haruna. Yep. That's not really that important. Um, I was playing as Haruna, which is, she's not very durable as a character. And so she has to use, in some situations, a buff to massively increase her evasion if she wants to, like, guarantee her survival in situations. Which means that she has to compete with, do I want to risk taking a lot of damage? I'm probably dying. 
or getting this secured resource and kills. And that is a really interesting dynamic too. That if you're also trying to get your battle masteries, there's a lot going on there. It, it's a very nice um, kind of intertwined system where you're trying to maximize the amount of resources that you're getting out of every fight. Uh, because you double the amount of BP, so you want to use it on the enemy that gives you the most BP, which tend to be the bosses. And that's you know then you'd have to set up on the bosses. So you know the bosses are scary, and oftentimes bosses have high evasion or like a, a mechanic that makes them hard to hit or hard to finish off. So SP is how you get through that. SP, which is potentially used to double the resources that you gain, is also used to guarantee hits. Uh, so yeah, there's that kind of balancing act that you have to get through. Super, super interesting. I want to stress here, Battle Moon Wars is currently uh, free to download and try if you can get past the fiddly UI of mid-2000s Japanese indie development, doujin development. It's kind of interesting. If you're into Type Moon at all, it has a pretty fan servicey, fun story to get through. It has a lot of yeah, cool mechanics, cool things to check out that is free of charge. Yeah, I'm not a huge Type Moon fan, but I played enough to know a lot of like the little plot details. It's really fun. It's also really pretty. Like for a um, standard definition game played on a modern PC, it looks really good. Robot Super Robot Wars has always been a series that has prided itself on good animations. This, for the indie small team version of that, is pretty remarkable, actually. It's a tiny team. These animations are pretty luscious, or like the still two, three frame sprite poses for some of the attacks are very good. Great keyframes. Really carries across that it's a labor of love by someone who by a group of people who loved the series that they're crossing over and meshing together i mean outside of just like it's risk reward mechanics it just seems like a good time if you like fate grand order you'll probably like get a bunch of the references too although this is well before <laughs> this is well extension before. of the nasuverse hey okay there is a truth in tight moon there is always a saber <laughs> there's a saber in this game how's that sound there is a saber in this game. Actually, 2005, is this out before the Fates Day Night anime? No, can't be. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think it's just after. 2006, this is um before. This is before the anime. So this is like before this is established. Um, Fates Day Night as a huge part of Japanese pop culture. Like this is when it was still a niche visual novel and hadn't quite yet escaped. And to be fair, even in the realm of visual novels, Fate Stay Night broke some molds. It Oh yes, like Type Moon in their original visual novel broke records. Like they were the first visual novel to sell over a hundred thousand copies. Fate Stay Night continued that trend. Then it went to consoles, normal consoles that people would actually play, and so on and so forth. Like Fate Stay Night has a legacy. Um, Type Moon pushed more into the mainstream than any other visual novel yeah. had done. But by the time this had come out, it was before that, which is not relevant to our discussion, no. but is interesting. And From a historical perspective. It's a nice curio that yeah. we hope you enjoyed. Uh, and so that's all that there really is to say about this without just wasting too much time gushing. Uh, but thinking means- of gushing... <laughs> I was going to use this exact same thing. Oh, sorry. I'll let you do this then. <laughs> uh Without, yeah, gushing too much about Battle Moon Wars, we will move on to the final game in our list, which is also a game that we've gushed over plenty of times already.
Final Fantasy VIII for the umpteenth time on platforms and pitfalls is a 1999 Squaresoft developed JRPG that follows the story of Squall Leonhardt out to save the world. You say the umpteenth time. This is actually on this, depending how you measure it, this is the second or the sixth time that we have talked about this. We, as a, as a specific title, we've mentioned it before, though. Okay, we have mentioned it before, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I think it's more about preparation discussions. Anyway, yes, this is an RPG that features Squall and his friends from an orphanage banding together, not rowing them from the same place, to save the world from time compression. It, it is, uh, I mean, without the time compression part, it is the JRPG story that says all this time. And for the most part, the plot follows very follows you know typical conventions but what we're specifically talking about today is the limit break system in final fantasy 8 so in previous final fantasies you have a limit break in 7 which is based on this meter that fills up whenever you take damage or desperation moves in some of the earlier games which just show up very very oh just six sorry i uh, would show up very very infrequently to the point where a lot of people play through the game and have no idea that that's even in the game more or less that was my experience of six in contrast eight's limit break system is much, much, much more um, not shy to show its face. It's really interesting, like, 8... So 7 had a bit of a thematic issue where you'd store up on limit breaks, go into a bus, and just use them all at the start, which doesn't seem very dramatic, hurling out these great, powerful moves at the very start of battle. 8's objective, at least in how it is presented to players, is that special moves come up in times of great stress. And so... They come up when your characters are nearly dead, or when you've only got one character left, or any number of like obviously bad situations, which is thematically really cool. You get to use these moves when a Dragon Ball character would use their new secret technique kind of thing. At the end of your rope, with nothing else available to you, you reach deep inside yourself and you perform a limit break. So let's talk about how the game decides when you can use limit breaks. Yeah. Basically... Every time your command window pops up, where you can choose attack, fight, or heal, or other options, um, but those are the options you'd pick, um, sometimes you can pick your limit break instead. There's a very small percent chance you could have one any turn in the game. As various things happen, your crisis level increases. These can range from your HP being in the yellow territory, which I believe is below, like, third, a third of your li- total life points. I believe that's right, yeah. It increases when you have certain status effects on. It increases when your allies are dead. Technically, every status effect increases the chance of this happening, but some status effects prevent you from accessing that menu. Yes. So potentially, if you have full life or in perfect fit form, but your two allies are dead, you'll have a much greater chance of triggering these. And limit breaks can scale depending on how much crisis you're in. So with all that said, why is this relevant? So the system isn't directly encouraging you to play riskily, but it's more opting for you to just like take a quick moment to take advantage of these things when you're in a bad spot before you heal yourself out of them. Unfortunately, it's really good at being a desperation mode. These are the best moves in the game. Hands down, because they don't consume any specific kind of resource. They deal immense amounts of damage, and if you manage your party well, they are consistent. And they're one of the few, like, really consistent options you get. And thanks to the mechanics in the game, you can artificially inflate your HP to extremely high levels. So it's very possible to have what the game is balanced for your max HP should being 
to being one third of your actual life total. So it might be, oh, the game's expecting you to be about 3000 HP. Well, I've set up my character build so that my max is already 9999, the maximum limit, which is I can always be ready for a limit break and be at a healthy HP range. So this system, it works, like it does work in sense it encourages you to play in this more risky state, but it's not risky enough. Is I think where this ends up. Yeah. So in giving players a reward for daring to go low on health and daring to fight in bad situations, it creates a dominant strategy of its own where you're just going to have an easy... Once you understand the system, you're just going to have an easier time being at low health almost all the time and using and spamming limit breaks. And this represents like the danger of maybe going too far with some of these mitigating techniques. By going too far with them, you can end up creating whole new situations that needed these things to be placed on them instead. Like, what if limit breaks had a chance of, like, hurting you back that would result in your own death? Would be a mitigation to this risk mitigation technique. Or this dominant strategy mitigation technique. It's an example of how these things can go wrong, which I think is an interesting thing to, like, touch on. Because it's still right. Like, it still did its job. It did its job, and for a lot of players who just play it not uncritically, but a lot of places you just play it as it presents itself. Yeah. And as it presents what you should be doing, you will not play like this. But 8 has this very interesting habit of when players play this game, they tend to break it. <laughs> yep. It's one of, I think, the most commonly broken games. And when we say broken, we don't mean actually broken, but we mean players feel like they've cheated the system. And there are lots of different ways that you can do that in 8, and the game can't really account for all the ways you can do that. It's pretty clear that the developers expected you to do some of this, but it's not clear whether they expected like the extremes of all of these cases. Limit Break Abuse is definitely feels like it's outside of the initial design and intent of the game. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of outside that and sort of within it, because yeah. there's a spell called Aura Precisely. that you collect. It's extremely rare, so they know how valuable this ability is. But what it does is it raises your crisis level artificially to an incredibly high state. So that for, you know, a minute or two, yet our character can do many, many limit breaks. Yeah. With a completely alive party, everyone at full health, no status effects on everyone, you have a very good chance of still activating a limit break on every turn. And this spell, if you're playing through without too much secret hunting, you might get 20 of these spells for the entire game. And given how the average player hoards these things, they will use maybe one in a boss battle sometimes. If you're really diligent, there are places you can farm them. It's very slow. However, again, the game just likes to allow you to break it. You can also effectively buy them if you know what you're doing. And money is not an issue. Yes. Yeah. So the game's aware that this is powerful. And it tries to gate the opportunity to do this as it would expect you to do it. But ultimately, it let, there are other ways to trigger um, this infinite limit break sort of system that are not using this ultra rare spell. That's really all we have to talk about here. There's obviously a lot to say about Final Fantasy VIII ever. But specifically, limit breaks are an interesting way to um, encourage risky play. You know, you want you to go down on low health. But also... Once you understand how to use it, it's a dominant strategy on its own. And now we'll move on to our closing thoughts and summaries. (music) 
So this month, we continued talking about dominant strategies, and specifically, we were looking at how a game can encourage players to take risky behavior to you know, play the game in, more, in a more interesting fashion. Uh, first up, we talked about Bloodborne with the gray life system that encourages you to be aggressive after taking a hit and, and jump straight back into the fight as opposed to standing back and taking time. Then we looked at Bayonetta, which encouraged you to fight until the point of just before being hit, not just avoiding everything entirely, but being there to be there at the very worst moments and preventing that. Then we looked at Final Fantasy XIII, which asked you to push yourself a little bit further than you really should to risk being able to not just heal your way out of this situation. After that, we had Battle Moon Wars, which is a tactical game that you know has a lot of setup in it and you can take your time and be relatively safe but in order to get the battle masteries that allow you to push your characters further get more rewards you have to oftentimes complete the game under a pretty hard time limit and lastly we went into final fantasy 8 with a limit break system that rewards you for being a bit risky in your behavior going a bit low on life but because of a lot of the ways the system interacts in that game ends up becoming a kind of dominant strategy on its own, relying on very powerful moves that can be used end-on-end. And that's what we looked at for dominant strategy mitigation, focusing on encouraging risky behavior. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to ask us any questions about what we talked about today, other things that you think maybe we should have talked about, we always love to talk with you and hear your feedback. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and email and all those good things. All that information in the show notes. We are still working on an addendum episode. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer for that regarding the past episodes or more general process, our own opinions on other things, we'd be happy to take them and keen to listen to them. And finally, I hints for next month's episode. And it is, again, a dominant strategy mitigation method. We have Dead Cells, Hearthstone, and Street Fighter V are three of the five games. And with that, thank you for listening. <laughs>